Thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. And uh, you had Tim and Janet last year, so this is the second string up here this year. And um, we are, you know, I don't know what benefit it would be to try to butter you up, but the truth of the week for me is I've rarely been anywhere where I've seen and heard and enjoyed the caliber of students that you have here at Montana Bible College. God's doing something special here. Um, it doesn't mean the other schools were terrible. Of course they were not. But you guys, your questions, your interests, your concerns, your interaction has been unusual. Thank you. Thank you for that. May it continue to be so. And uh, if you didn't raise your hand for pizza tonight, you're waiting to decide, uh, you can still get that vote changed. Thank you so much, Danny, for the prayer. What we'd like to do uh, in the rest of the time is not just recite statistics or things about World Venture or about the need around the world for missions. That's already there for us. We, we know a lot of that as our backdrop to this. Let's take a look at what Jesus said with regard to how do you get to the mission field. When I took this role at World Venture five years ago, we as a team asked ourselves that question. Is there anything in Scripture that tells us how do people end up in cross-cultural, primarily, ministry? And, you know, we could think of those special calls of God on Jonah, um, on Paul. Or we could think of uh, Acts 13, where he wasn't even done with Paul and Barnabas yet. He said, no, no, I want those guys special. Well, we have those things in Scripture often as exceptions, as unusual. That's why it's usually recorded there, because we want to show you what God did specially. But in Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions his fellow workers in missions, his fellow workers in the gospel. He mentions over 33 names. Did all of them get knocked off of a horse? Or how did they end up in full-time cross-cultural ministry? Anyway, um, one of my favorite authors is Andrew Murray. Most of his stuff is in the public domain now. So if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Andrew Murray, go online and download everything you can. Written by this guy. He has written a book called Humility, and it's something my wife and I have said we will read once every year. It's only about 92 pages, but man, is it profound. Does my character match up with that of my humble and meek Savior? At least that's the way he self-described. This is his quote. I love it. The man, and it could be the woman, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. We tend to think it's the person up front. It's the leader. It's the visionary. It's that founder. He lived long enough and did ministry long enough to say, no, no, no. It's that, for us, maybe obscure person who simply would not give up 
on prayer. And he mobilized, and she mobilized people to pray. Well, we're going to take a look at a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Turn your Bibles on, flip them open. We're going to take a look at this passage, and we want to look at it uh, as in-depth as time will allow. Because I think it contains some huge truths for us in this area. Hey, wait a minute. What did Jesus really just say? That's kind of my thought. I can blow past Matthew 9, 35 to 38 quickly. But we dare not. Here it is. As Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. One of the things I remember learning very quickly in Bible college when I was in your seat is to, to really understand the hermeneutics, understand what's the literature of Scripture, what are the, what are the things the writers used to communicate God's truth. Well, one of the things I appreciate about Scripture is it rarely uses hyperbole. You know, hyperbole is you exaggerate, you intentionally enhance your story to make a point. The Bible almost never, never does that. If I had written it, it would be filled with hyperbole. I mean, think about some of the stuff that's in there. Joshua prayed, and the sun stood still for about a day. What? <laughs> and it just goes on. And therefore, Joshua chased them in the valleys and the hills of Israel. Well, wait a minute. The sun stood still for about a day? Think of that cosmically. How does that happen? We now know the earth stopped moving. It's like God said, I got it. I would make a big deal about that. <laughs> That's a big deal. The Bible just goes on. What did we just read? Healing every disease and every affliction, period. When he saw, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Okay, where is Jesus right now? What are we talking about? He's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's villages up there. They have synagogues. And he was kind of rotating, apparently, among them, preaching about the kingdom of God. But people brought there the sick because they had heard, this guy's a different rabbi. And Jesus healed almost all of them. When the Bible says every, what does it mean? It means every. When the Bible says all, it means all. We can trust Scripture when it says these things. Keep it in context. The context wasn't everybody in all the world or even everybody in Israel it was everybody who came to those synagogues where Jesus was teaching on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But he healed every disease and every affliction. 
probably with a word, with a touch, even with a thought. Jesus had no problem healing everything. My brother-in-law is a physician. And he said, Doug, in the history of mankind, he does not know of anyone ever being healed from Down syndrome. Ever. I said, well, for Jesus, it was no problem. Were they included here? We do not know. But every disease and every affliction. That's why the crowds grew, wasn't it? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Wait a minute, why? Compassion is that thing in, when your gut, you feel a knot in your gut because you're moved by somebody's plight. These guys were all as healthy as could be. They'd never been healthier. He's looking out at a crowd of perfectly healthy people. But he's moved with compassion. He's got that knot in his gut when he looks at them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's New Testament speak for they were lost. They were spiritually dead in their sins. They were still lost. They were enamored with Jesus for his healing ability. They had not embraced him as Messiah, as Savior, as the one who could take away their sins. No, he was still just an amazing attraction. And he saw that, and he was moved with compassion. Do we let ourselves see? Do we really see the situation near and far so that we let it impact us at all? Are we pretty good at, eh, another tsunami, uh, another gunman in a bar in California, eh? Or do we really let ourselves see? Jesus let himself see. And he had a response. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, when Jesus describes a problem anywhere in Scripture, what's going to be the very next verse? You guys are way too quiet. The solution. If Jesus describes a problem, the next sentence is probably going to be the solution to the problem. And that's exactly what we've got. He could have said anything right there in verse 38. Anything. He could have said, hey guys, look at all these lost people. Why don't we get the best minds in Israel together and, and tackle this problem? Why don't we uh, start a school? Why don't we have a conference? Why don't we write a book? All of those things are legitimate. He could have said anything right here. If I had been Jesus, I would have said, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call down fiery flaming angels, legions of them from heaven, and they are going to confront every human being on the planet and convince them with incredible acts that I am the Messiah come to save them. That's what I had done. Don't you think that would have worked? 
I kind of like the big impressive stuff. That would have blown me away. But Jesus, had that, he had that as an option, didn't he? He even mentions it later on the cross. He could have said anything. He said this. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That was his solution. There was no plan B. This is it. Jesus said, you see the lost? There they are, right there. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Don't just pray normal. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. In other words, sending out people who know the truth is the only way lost people will get saved. Let's... I, sh I really shouldn't do this in a Bible college with people who know Greek better than I, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is Matthew 9.38 in Greek. Now, for you guys, this is familiar stuff. When I've shown this uh, in churches, they all go, what? That's Greek? That's kind of pretty. I can assure you, most Greek students don't think Greek is all that pretty. Uh, it's, it's a... It's a challenge to be overcome. It's something we have to deal with, isn't it? When I was f first asking the question at World Venture, how do people end up in the mission field? And somebody said, have you ever looked at Matthew 938 in Greek? And I go, oh, maybe. Oh. He goes, no, no, no. Do you know the word for pray? And I said, well, of course I do. Prosoikomai. To make a request to a deity. He goes, no, no, no. That's not the word Jesus used. I said, what? Well, what word did he use? He said, take a look at this. And we see it's de-ethete. It's, de it's from de-omai. Not the common and expected words for prayer, prosoikomai, or what's the common word for send? Apostolos, apostello, I send. The apostles were sent ones. Those words are not found in this verse. But unusual words. Here's what we mean. He says, therefore, de ethita, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Now, it's only the ESV that catches this nuance very well in, in English. On top of some of the more older versions where it says, beseech, implore. When you want to know a little bit deeper what a Greek word means, how do you do that? How do you go about it besides looking in the dictionary? Look and see where else it's used. Let's do that. It's not used very often in the New Testament. Here we find it in Luke 9. And suddenly a man from the crowd cries out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Now, where did all that emotion come from? This is his, the word there in Luke 9. We see a little bit more about this father in Matthew 17. It's the same guy. It's the same situation. In Matthew 17, 
he bursts through the crowd, he throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he begs and says, Lord, please, please help my son. He's my only child. Do you remember how he was described by Matthew before that? The demons would plague this young man so severely that he would throw himself in fire to die. Or he would throw himself in a cistern to drown. How many times do you suppose this father pulled his beloved son out of those death-threatening situations? Nobody could help. He was at his rope's end. And then he heard, he heard, wait a minute, there's a traveling rabbi who seems to be able to do miraculous things. And then he hears he's coming to my town. Now, if this guy had been politically correct, he would have gone up to one of the disciples and said, hey, could I be your master's three o'clock this afternoon? But he didn't do that, and neither would you or I. He didn't care what anybody thought anymore, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he, oh my, I beg you, teacher, please take a look at my son. This is the kind of praying we reserve for when our child is dying. I've been in hospitals with moms and dads. And I've seen them pray at a whole new level that they never prayed for before. That's this word. Deomai means I beg you, I implore, I grovel, I beseech. We find it one other time in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is superior to the idols and superior to their previous way of life. And he says to them, I beg you, be reconciled to God. And then this send, it's not send, it's ekbalo. Ekbale, send workers out into the harvest. And again, we find it used in Mark 7, where the Seraphonician woman comes up to Jesus and says, I beg you to cast this demon from my daughter. That's what the word means. It means cast out. Launch. And here, it's commonly used of demon exorcism. And now Jesus has taken that same word and says, this is how you get workers into the harvest field. They need to be launched, cast out. We find it one more time in James 2.25 where James is rehearsing the story of Rahab, where Rahab had hid the Israeli spies, uh, perhaps on her roof. And the security forces of Jericho came and said, Rahab, we know they're here. And Rahab said, well, they were, they were here, but they're gone. They took off that way. And we know then the story, the security forces take off that way. And she goes up to the spies where they're hiding and says, you know, you guys probably ought to think about going now. I hope you're catching my sarcastic love, my love for sarcastic humor here. This. She says, you ought to go. You need to go right now. And don't go that way, go that way. This word, ekbalo, has a sense of urgency to it. Thrust, launch, uproot, like you would uproot a plant and transplant it somewhere else. 
Jesus very likely jolted his disciples with the words he used and the level to which he elevated the need for missionaries and the way to mobilize them. You know, are we praying desperately for God to uproot and launch harvest workers? Are we? We ask that question at World Venture. I mean, we're a mission agency for crying out loud. Were we praying with anywhere near that kind of intensity? No. No, we were not. Do we as churches, do we as Bible college students, do we pray for, with all we've got, with our entire being, with, from knees, from prostrate positions, for God to send out harvest workers? No, we don't. Maybe we don't because we've never really captured this important truth from 9.35 to 38. Gail Chatfield is uh, an author. She's actually a writer for the San Diego newspaper. Um, and a few years ago, she took it upon herself through her patriotism to say, I would like to capture the stories of the Marines that are still alive from World War II. There aren't a lot. She scoured the records, she traveled the country, and she interviewed between 80 and 90 Marines who were still alive at that time and asked to tell their stories of World War II. And she found out something she didn't expect to find that became the dominant theme of her book. What do you think in 1943 and 1944, teenage boys in America were in a panic about what? What do you think? That they'd get drafted? Did you read the book? That the war would end before they could get into it. That was their concern. That was their thought. That was, it was a different day, was it not? I was raised in the 60s. Uh, I know you can't hardly believe that. But uh, there was a very unpopular war raging at the time. And I had friends and colleagues that when their draft number came up, I never saw them again. They went to Canada. But in the 40s, in the middle of World War II, that was not the feeling of the nation at all. Everybody was all in. There was no price too high to pay. Manufacturing companies, schools, every, everybody was all in. Gasoline was rationed. Food was rationed. And young boys said, I am not going to stay home while my older brother and my friends enlist and go to war. You see, this fight had to be won. It was a noble cause. <coughs> Excuse me. This iconic picture was, of course, taken by a photographer on Iwo Jima. Um, great, great photo. Fantastic. But this photo was quickly used by recruiting offices around the country 
to get more young men to come in and sign up. One of the things Gail Chatfield found in her research was she looked at those old enlisted documents. And sure enough, you know, Johnny signed up and he said, I'm 18 years old when he was 16. Or even younger. Story after story, she found out that these Marines lied about their age because they wanted in. No price was too high. This had to be done. This was a noble thing. This is the very next picture taken by that same photographer. Uh, as you can see, there were more there than just the ones that were raising the flag. And I tried to zoom in, but you begin to lose clarity real quickly. So I zoomed in as far as I could. That young man in the circle, if he's 18, I'll eat my hat. I'll eat the cardboard box the pizza comes in tonight. No way. No way. But you know what else we found out on those registrations, those enlistment documents? It wasn't just Johnny that signed and said, I'm 18, when he wasn't. There were more names at the bottom of that page. Whose? Mom and dad. Time after time after time, she found documented proof that mom and dad signed that document as well and said, Johnny's 18 when he was 16 or 15. Now, what, what would compel a mother or a father to agree to lie about their son's age so that he could go off to war and probably never come back? What would motivate a mom and a dad to do this? They were all in. It was a noble cause. No price was too high. This is not uncommon. Three years after illegally joining the Marines at the age of what? 14. Jackie Lucas snuck onto a ship bound for Iwo Jima, stormed the beach without a rifle, and threw himself on top of two grenades to protect his team. He survived and earned the Medal of Honor at the age of 17. You had to be 20 years old in the 1943 to join the Army Air Corps. Because in the Army Air Corps, you were gonna be a pilot and an officer. This good looking guy was born in 1925. So how old is he in 1943? He's 18. He went to the recruiting office and said, I'm 20 years old, I wanna join the Army Air Corps, I wanna be a pilot, I wanna fly in this war. And apparently they believed him because he looked it and they took it and they signed him up and they said, here's what we're doing, putting you tomorrow on a train to Yuma, Arizona. And in 90 days, this 18 year old kid became the pilot of a B-24 and a second lieutenant in the Army Air Corps. 
And apparently this guy was good enough at the actual landings and takeoffs that they made him squadron commander over 10 planes. And they sent those 10 planes to Palawan, west of the Philippines, to fight in the Pacific Theater. He was the second lieutenant, the pilot, squadron commander over 10 planes. He was 18 years old. I could tell you a lot more about this guy because this is my father. That's my dad. Only four of those planes survived the war and came home. No price was too high. We had to win this war. Just like World War II came to an end, so will the Great Commission. It's not going to be there forever for us to participate in. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be awesome? If Christ followers today had the same passion as teenage boys in 1943. But I'll be honest with you. I've already mentioned to you. I've traveled to other schools. I've traveled to conferences and to churches. I am not hearing Anywhere near that kind of compassion or that willingness that no price is too high. This is a noble cause. This is worth giving your life for. I'm hearing the opposite. I've had a young man come up to me at a Christian university and he looked at my stuff, you know, you know how we have. We have tables and we have banners behind us and whatnot. And he looks at everything. He says, oh, I would love to go missions. When somebody says that, you know, there's an unspoken but. So I said, you would love to go missions. What's the problem? He goes, oh, if I did that, my parents would kill me. I said, oh, okay. Your mom and dad are not believers? He goes, yeah, my dad's a pastor. I said, excuse me? No, what? Yeah, when I mentioned to them not too long ago, I was thinking about missions. They said to me, if you waste your life becoming a missionary, you're going to pay back every penny of the tuition we've paid for you so far. Now, if I had only heard that one time, it would be an anomaly, and it would not be worth mentioning to you. I have heard that time after time after time, various versions of it. My family would kill me. I've had people in my church tell me, oh, no, 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 you don't, no, you don't want to waste your life doing that. You're getting a degree in engineering. You're going to be terrific. You're going to make a lot of money. When, when did it become wasting your life to become a missionary? I can see the clock is killing me. There's reasons for joining the battle. Now, these are just, this is just stuff I came up with. You could come up with your own reasons that would be perfectly legitimate. Very quickly, everything you can see is temporary. Except people. Those lost people that Jesus had compassion for, they are eternal beings, and so are you, and so am I. We're going to live forever. 
The question is, what is forever going to look like? One day you will stand before Jesus face to face. Do you really want the only thing you can thank him for to be your own salvation? As glorious as that is, as excited as we should be about that, do we want that to be it? Or do we want to be able to say, oh, Jesus, I was scared spitless to talk to those people, but you gave me the courage, and look, there they are. There they are. Thank you, Jesus. The fight isn't to determine which type of human government will rule over us. Whether we pay our taxes to Berlin or Tokyo. The fight isn't about that. It's between eternal heaven and eternal hell. We're on the clock. We're on the clock. We can't see it. Like I can see that one back there that I'm trying to ignore. But we are on the clock. The Great Commission is on the clock. Now, regardless of what your favorite flavor on the menu of eschatology is, they all have one thing in common, and that is that this age is going to come to an end. One day Jesus will say, that's it. We are now moving on to the next thing in God's eternal program. And the opportunity to make disciples, the opportunity to plant churches, will be over. We still have that opportunity right now. At World Venture, we've moved into new facilities just recently. And it has taken us a while to get the decorations kind of up, you know, so it doesn't look like sterile white walls. And this is what it looks like if you walk into our front door now. This is what we put up. Billions of people don't know Jesus. We are not okay with that. We are not okay with that. Are you? There are still so many unreached people groups around the world that are not yet represented here in the United States because they're difficult to get to. They're restricted access people, as we like to refer to them. But we can get there. We just have to be creative. We have to be courageous. We have to be careful. But God will open doors to do it. And World Venture has committed itself to, first thing, 15 more unreached people groups we're going after. And we've chosen those 15 because they are already in geographical proximity to where we work and where we are. But if we want to send five couples or five units to those 15 unreached people groups, we need 75 more missionaries that we don't have right now. Might you be one of them? You know, every, I don't know about that. that was going to, I was going to make an exaggerated statement, hyperbole, right? Many missions movements in the last 250 years have started at schools, have started as a result of students deciding to pray, to beg the Lord of the harvest. Williams College, the Haystack Prayer Meeting, Cambridge 7, 
that Hudson Taylor recruited? How about Montana Bible College? Why could you not be ground zero for another missions revival? You've got everything you need for it. We're not okay with that. Finally, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. What Jesus say? Our part, our part is to do what? To beg, beseech, plead, and cry out to the Lord of the harvest to do his part. To cast out, to uproot, to launch. And before he does any of those three things, he grabs your heart and says, yeah, I'm talking to you. You can do this. You and I can do this. I remember when that thought hit me and I said, you got to be kidding, God. I want nothing to do with that. And I fought it off for a long time. Until I finally stopped fighting it off. And thought, okay, God, if, okay, I'll try it. I'll try it. That was nearly 40 years ago. And I have never, never regretted it for a second. This is too important. We're back to where we started. Andrew Murray. The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. That could be anybody. It could be you, it could be me. But it needs to be done. I thought this morning would, by design, be very much less interactive. And of course it was. Tonight, we want to be very interactive, where you have the chance to say anything. Say, Doug, I think you're wrong. We're going to hear more from Tim and Janet tonight. And we're going to eat pizza. We're going to have a good time. Father in heaven, Lord of the harvest, we don't often refer to you by that title, but that's the title Jesus gave you. Give us eyes so that we see the lost the way Jesus saw them. May we be moved with compassion. May we not fight off that feeling. And may we be willing to beg, beseech, implore you to send out workers into your harvest field, including us. It's a noble cause. It's worth the high price. Thank you that you want to use us and you don't have a plan B. Give us courage, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.